Welcome to Defenders, the teaching class of Dr. William Lane Craig. Today, the Doctrine of Christ, Part 25. For more information and resources from Dr. Craig, go to reasonablefaith.org. Having discussed the atonement of Christ for several months, we now turn today to a second aspect of Christ's work, which is his resurrection from the dead. The resurrection of Christ from the dead is tightly connected with his atoning work on the cross. Indeed, the cross and resurrection are like two sides of the same coin. In Romans 4.25, Paul says that Jesus Christ was put to death for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The resurrection of Jesus is a consequence and a ratification of Christ's satisfaction of divine justice on the cross. On the one hand, it is a um, consequence of the satisfaction of divine justice. Because divine justice has been fully satisfied by the substitutionary punishment and death of Christ, Christ can no longer be held by death. The punishment cannot continued. The price has been paid and therefore a consequence of the satisfaction of divine justice is Christ's rising from the dead and breaking the bonds of death and hell and sin. On the other hand it's also a ratification of Christ's satisfaction of divine justice. It shows us that the cross was not ultimately a pointless tragedy of history, but that this was indeed God's great redemptive act in human history and the resurrection of Christ from the dead shows us clearly that the price has been paid, that justice has been satisfied, and our redemption has been completed by Christ's work on the cross. So the resurrection is not some independent and separate appendage to Christ's atoning work. It is a consequence and ratification of it. Now we want to first look at the scriptural data, or some of it anyway, concerning uh, Jesus' resurrection. And as we do so, we will first look at one of the earliest historical testimonies to Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And this is the 15th chapter of Paul's first letter to the church of Corinth, Greece. Um, this is a separate and independent treatise on the resurrection which is included in Paul's first letter to the Corinthian church. Paul had spent uh, the year AD 50 to 51 in Corinth planting a church there and then later around AD 55 he wrote again to the Corinthians, reminding them of the gospel that he preached to them, and it includes in his letter this treatise on the resurrection, which we want to look at this morning. So let's um, turn in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and look at this chapter. The purpose of Paul's writing this chapter is found in verse 12, chapter 15, verse 12. Paul says, Now if Christ is preached as raised from the dead, 
how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? There were evidently people in Corinth, not all, but some of them, who were denying that the dead are ever raised. Um, they apparently did not believe that we will eventually be raised from the dead, as Jews typically uh, believed. Now, we don't know exactly what motivated this denial on the part of some of these Corinthian Christians of the doctrine of um, the end-time resurrection of the dead. It could have been that Paul was uh, encountering here a kind of incipient Gnosticism, which says that the spiritual is good and pure and the material is evil and fallen and therefore the idea of a resurrection of the body was repugnant to them and impossible for these proto-gnostics the idea of a resurrection of the physical body was something that could not take place or it may have been that what Paul was encountering in Corinth was a kind of simple materialism that said that we are simply physical bodies and that when you die the lights go out and that is the end of your existence and therefore there is no immortality of the soul, no immortality of any sort to be had. And scholars debate over exactly what the Corinthian heresy was. The difficulty is that we have nothing from the Corinthian heretics themselves, we have to reconstruct their position as best we can from the way in which Paul responds to it, and that is very difficult to do. But the bottom line is that there were people in the church of Corinth who denied that the dead will be raised. And Paul writes this chapter in order to refute this error. Now, the chapter falls naturally into two parts. In verses 1 to 34, Paul talks about Christ's resurrection as the guarantee of our resurrection. The reason that we can believe in the resurrection of the dead uh, at the end of human history is because Christ has been raised from the dead in advance as the forerunner and the guarantor of our eventual resurrection. That's verses 1 to 34. And then from verses 35 to the end of the chapter, in verse 58, 35 to 58, he answers a Corinthian objection uh, based upon the nature of the resurrection body. Here he is responding then to these heretics who say that it's impossible that a resurrection of the body should occur, and Paul will refute this objection in verses 35 to 58. So, let's begin to delve into this chapter by looking at part one, which is Christ's resurrection as the guarantee of ours. First, in verses 1 to 11, Paul discusses the evidence for the resurrection of Christ. Let's read these verses together. Now, I would remind you, brethren, in what terms I preach to you the gospel, which you received, in which you stand, by which you are saved if you hold it fast, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. 
Then he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unfit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God which is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now, in this passage that we've read together, Paul quotes an extremely early tradition that he himself had received and in turn passed on to the Corinthian church when he founded it. Uh, and this passage or this tradition comes in verses 3 to 5 when he says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And now he begins to quote this formula, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. It is universally agreed among scholars today that Paul is not writing in his own hand here. He is not freely composing. Rather, he is relying on and quoting from an old tradition that he himself received from those who were in Christ before him and then passed on to his converts in Corinth. How do we know this? Well, in verse 3, Paul uses the technical rabbinical terms for the transmission of sacred tradition. When he says, um, I delivered what I also received. The words here for receiving and delivering are the rabbinical terms for the transmission of sacred tradition. Moreover, this passage or these verses are filled with non-Pauline traits. That is to say, stylistic traits that are not characteristic of the Apostle Paul. For example, the phrase, according to the scriptures, or in accordance with the scriptures, which appears in verses in lines 1 and 3 of the formula, is non-Pauline. Paul typically will quote scripture by saying, as it is written. But here, there is this non-Pauline phrase, according to the scriptures. Also, the verb in line 3, he has been raised on the third day, um, is not a Pauline uh, expression. This is only found elsewhere in the uh, broader Pauline corpus in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 8. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 8, where he says, Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, descended from David, as preached in my gospel. And this verse in 2 Timothy likewise seems to be very stylized and probably reflects itself earlier tradition rather than uh, the author's own composition. Finally, the use of the expression the twelve is not typical for Paul. This indicates probably the uh, a group of people that was comprised of the original 
disciples, the original 12 disciples that followed Jesus, though of course by this time Judas would have fallen away. So the 12 is a designation or a name of a group, not necessarily an enumeration of the number of people as the 12, just as we might say the Big Ten, referring to a conference that may have more than or less than 10 uh, universities in it. So these are non-Pauline characteristics that indicate the use of prior tradition. Moreover, um, the formula that he cites in verses 3 to 5 overshoots what needs to be proved. What needs to be proved in this chapter is that Christ rose from the dead. That's going to be the linchpin of his argument. You Corinthians cannot deny the resurrection of the dead because Christ rose from the dead. But the formula expresses more than the resurrection. It also has in the first line Christ's death for our sins in accordance with the scriptures and then in the second line the burial of Jesus. And these play no part in the argument of 1 Corinthians 15 which shows that Paul is citing a unitary formula that includes all of these elements even though his interest and focus is simply on the third and fourth lines in Christ's uh, rising from the dead and appearing to various witnesses. Finally, there is uh, a sort of parallelism or Semitic uh, quality to this tradition. Um, by saying it's Semitic, I mean it's Hebraic, it's, it's Jewish. First, there is the parallelism of these four lines. Christ died for our sins according to the, in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised from the dead on the third day in accordance with the scriptures and he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Obviously the first and third lines are parallel. They both include the expression according to the scriptures. And similarly the second and fourth line are both very brief. He was buried, he appeared to Cephas and to the twelve. So you have this sort of typical uh, Semitic parallelism uh, in the structure of this formula. Moreover, the expressions on the third day are, or rather is written in awkward Greek, um, but it seems to reflect a Semitic origin or Aramaic origin. If you translate on the third day uh, back into Aramaic, this is an Aramaic sort of construction rather than the natural Greek construction. And then the word kephos itself. This is Peter that we're talking about, Simon Peter. But Simon Peter is a Greek name. His Aramaic name was Kephas. And so in this um, formula, uh, Simon Peter is referred to by his Aramaic name, Kephas. So I think you can see that there are a number of Semitic features of this tradition that betray its origin. And then the last point uh, that I wanted to mention with regard to this formula is that Paul says in verse 11 that it represents the preaching of all the apostles. He says, whether it was they or I, so we preach and so you believed. So he is not giving back here some idiosyncratic gospel that was peculiar to Paul. This is the apostolic message summarized in four brief lines by this tradition which Paul then himself preached in the city of Corinth. Compare in this regard the sermons 
in the Acts of the Apostles. Look at Acts chapter 13, verses 28 to 31. In Acts chapter 13, we have some of the early preaching of the apostles with respect to the gospel. And in Acts 13, 28 to 31, you will see that it follows like an outline the four-line formula of 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 5. In chapter 13, verses 28 and following, uh, it says, Though they could charge him with nothing deserving death, yet they asked Pilate to have him killed. And when they had fulfilled all that was written of him, uh, notice according to the scriptures, right? He died according to the scriptures for our sins. They took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. As I say, this follows like an outline, 1 Corinthians 15, 3-5. Christ died, he was buried, he was raised, and he appeared. So what we have here is a faithful summary of the early apostolic preaching. You can also discern this by looking at the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15 and chapter 16. Mark chapter 15 and Mark uh, chapter 16. Here we have the climax to the Passion story as Mark relates it. And in chapter 15 we have the crucifixion of Jesus uh, and his death. And then in the latter part of 15, we have the burial of Jesus in the tomb. And then in 16, we have the discovery of the empty tomb, the proclamation of his resurrection by the angel. He is risen. He is not here. And then the foreshadowing of the appearances. He is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him as he told you. So again, in the passion story, you have all four elements of 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 5. You've got the death on the cross. You've got the burial in the tomb. You've got the discovery of the empty tomb and the resurrection from the dead. And then finally, the appearances to various witnesses. And this has convinced, as I say, all scholars that what we have here in 1 Corinthians 15 uh, is an extraordinarily early and primitive, primitive in the sense of being early and unvarnished, um, an early primitive tradition of the apostolic gospel that was proclaimed by the church. Any questions or comments on that um, aspect of Paul's chapter? Yes, Kevin. When he's talking about some who may not believe in the resurrection of the dead, is it possible that these are Christians who came from a Sadducee tradition? That is a very good point. Uh, do you remember Paul later, or elsewhere in the book of Acts, splits the Jerusalem council that is judging him by discerning that some are Pharisees and some are Sadducees, and the Sadducees deny the resurrection of the dead. And Paul says, brethren, I'm a Pharisee, and I'm on trial here for the hope and the resurrection of the dead. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees turn against each other, and, and, and Paul gets to, to be released. Maybe. I, I mean, could it be that these are Jews in Corinth who reflect this, um, 
conservative Sadducean tradition. We just don't know, but that's a possibility. Yes, Cody. So I was just wondering if you could comment on in 1 Corinthians 15 when Paul says that Jesus was raised in accordance with the scriptures. Do you mm. think there's a particular passage he's thinking of or what group of... Well, what All right, I, I wasn't going to talk about that, but of course that is much debated. What is Paul thinking of here when he says he's been raised from the dead in accordance with the scriptures? Um, some have suggested this is an, a reference to Hosea 6.2 where... Um, God says of Israel that I have, I have torn them, but uh, on the second day I will restore them. On the third day I will raise them up. And some have suggested that maybe Hosea 6.2 is in view here. problem with that is that the verse is extremely obscure. Um, and it's not cited anywhere else in the New Testament as a proof text for Jesus. When you look at the proof texts that Jesus cites, for his resurrection, it's the story of Jonah. Uh, that as, the, as Jonah was in the belly of the earth for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man shall be in the belly of the or as he was in the whale, so the Son of Man shall be in the belly of the earth for three days and three nights. And so the, the Jonah story seems to be the one at least that Jesus had in mind. Another possibility is this could be a reference to Isaiah 53. And I think that's very plausible because the phrase, he died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, I think has got to be a reference to Isaiah 53 because there is nowhere, any place in the Old Testament, even remotely about Messiah's dying for our sins apart from Isaiah 53. And if this is what's in mind in the first line of the formula, it's very plausible that that's also in mind in the third line of the formula when in the last part of Isaiah 53 he says he will see his progeny and be satisfied and it seems to foreshadow his resurrection from the dead. So I think that's a, a very real possibility. Some other comment or question? Yes, Steve. Uh, along the same lines, uh, David not allowed Holy One to see corruption. Yes, um, Psalm 16, I, I believe that is, that's cited in the book of Acts um, about the resurrection of the dead. Um, again, it seems a remote possibility. That passage really isn't about resurrection when you read it. David is talking about how he won't die. That's what he means when he says he won't see corruption. Um, and it doesn't mention the third day motif either. So that's a possibility, but I think more remote than the ones that have been mentioned. Michael. Dr. Craig, can you flesh out for us a little bit? I know you've talked oftentimes about how early this goes back. Uh, can you flesh that out a little bit, how, how scholars get to those dates a little bit? That's the next point okay. on my outline. So I will use that as a segue to the next point, which is the origin of this tradition. I mentioned that Paul delivered this tradition to the Corinthian church when he founded the church there in AD 50. That's just 20 years after Jesus' death in AD 30. But obviously, the tradition that Paul received goes even further back. And I think we have a clue as to Paul's reception of this formula in Galatians chapter 1, verses 15 to 19. Let's turn to Paul's letter to the churches in Galatia, chapter 1 verses 15 
to 19. Here Paul is describing his Damascus Road conversion. And he says, when he who had set me apart before I was born and had called me through his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia. And again, I returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now here Paul says, three years after his Damascus Road conversion, which probably took place around A.D. 33, he goes up to Jerusalem on this fact-finding trip and spends two weeks with the um, apostles Peter, or Cephas, and James in Jerusalem. And it's very interesting to note that uh, these are the two names that appear in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 3 to 7. It, the only two individuals named are Cephas and James, the very people that Paul saw during this visit. And I think it's highly unlikely that any later reception of this tradition would have supplanted in Paul's mind um, the testimony firsthand of Cephas and James that he got on this occasion. As C.H. Dodd, the great New Testament scholar from Cambridge University, uh, said, we can assume that they didn't spend all their time talking about the weather. Uh, talking to Cephas and James during these two weeks, he undoubtedly learned the facts about uh, Jesus' resurrection and, and, and empty tomb and so forth. And so I think it's very likely that he received this formula uh, at this time, if not before, while he was in Damascus. He was involved in Christian ministry in Damascus after his conversion for, for uh, around three years. He could have even received it then. But it means that this formula probably goes back prior to AD 36. That is to say, it goes back to within the first five years after Jesus' crucifixion. And so this is incredibly early material. When people say to you, well, the documents of the Old Testament were written decades after the events occurred, after memory had faded and so forth, what they don't understand is that these New Testament documents rely upon traditions which go right back to the time of the events, incredibly early and therefore valuable sources of historical information. And that is the case with 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 5. This is some of the earliest tradition embodied anywhere in the New Testament. And what does it tell us? Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised from the dead on the third day. And he appeared to all these various witnesses. Incredible. Well, let's close with a word of prayer now and bring our lesson to an end. Our Lord, we're so thankful for the tradition that has been preserved for us and embodied in Paul's letter and now has come down to us today so that we can read and appreciate it too. And we thank you, Lord, for the great work that you did in sending Christ to die for our sins as you had promised and foretold 
and then raising him from the dead, thereby showing that his satisfying work on our behalf is full and complete, and we are now free and redeemed. Thank you. In Christ's name, amen. The copyright for the preceding material is held by Dr. William Lane Craig. For more, go to reasonablefaith.org.